Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Chris Wright, the CTO at Red Hat, and we discuss the evolution of the open source movement, an amazing explanation of cloud computing, and how the organization is planning an all virtual experience for Red Hat Summit 2020 on April 28th and 29th. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Are you getting your exercise while we're all locked in? Uh, yeah, I am actually. I, uh, so two, two things. One is um, I'm, a, I'm a cyclist. I'm kind of a cyclist nerd. So I have um, a contraption that if you're not a cyclist, you might not have seen it before. It's, it's a, it's, they're called rollers and rollers are a set of um, tumblers that you can literally ride your bike on. So there's a, there's a belt drive between the front and the rear tumbler. Um, and when you're pedaling, it's rolling those tumblers and, and you're just, you're just riding your bike inside. Um, and it's, it's a much more real feel than sitting on a trainer where you're kind of clamped in and maybe you took a wheel off to, to make it all work. Um, so I do that. Uh, I got my own little weights, you know, kind of the, the faux home gym. And then, uh, I've still been going solo, not with groups, but solo doing some outside, uh, cycling and certainly just walks through the neighborhood. So trying to stay active and keep, it's just part of my mental sanity. So it's kind of a critical part of life. Um, yeah. Me too. The moment that I switched and the gym was closed, I was like, I have to figure this out. So I went and dusted off like a yoga mat, right? <laughs> but in my garage found, I had like one seven pound weight and two 15 pound <laughs> weights. Yeah. I'm like, this'll do. I can That'll make work out around this. Yeah. And yeah, you just, you just, uh, you know, make do it. Do. Make these little, yeah. You just, you just do it. Right. Yeah, that's how, yeah. that's how we, that's how we operate as people. Yeah. So, you know, I like the conversation of, uh, that I've been hearing a lot about the, the different technologists, but how we're pretty, pretty used to working remote and from home. Was that the case with you and your teams? hundred percent. Uh, so with a key caveat, personally, I've been remote for, um, over a decade, almost the last uh, almost the last 15 years, about a year and a half ago, I actually moved and relocation was ironically to spend more time in, in an office. Uh, and so I'm out here in the Boston area. I, I'm from Portland, Oregon and going back to working from home for me has been really, really easy. Um, I have such a long history of being a, um, a work from home person that, Things like I'm at home, so that means you know the door to my office is closed, and my kids just intuit what that means. It's not a new experience for anybody in the house. Um, what is different is we're all home, and we're in this physical isolation. How do you stay social at all? Kind of um, experience that is different. In the past, it's either school and everybody's off doing their day, or it's summertime. And it's relaxed and sleep in and go play with your friends and do whatever. So that experience is new. 
And then if you, if you take my experience and just magnify that across Red Hat, we have a full spectrum of people who are um, like me, have spent a lot of time working, uh, working from home, or people who have exclusively gone into the office. Everybody has, there's some new twist to this current experience. Red Hat in general is a very distributed company. And I, the way I like to say it is um, we really mirror the external uh, communities that we're a part of. So if you think about it, a community as this distributed thing, right? It's not one place, one location, one company. It's a whole global experience. Red Hat internally is quite a bit like that. And so I think how you communicate digitally, um, the, the kinds of practices, best practices that you build over time to, to really foster that distributed workforce is more natural to, to Red Hat, but it doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't mean that it's somehow magically easy for everybody to be in, you know, this is a different time. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of challenges and you've got the, the toddlers at home that can't understand why mom or dad aren't available right this moment because they need their parents' attention. And you know, that, that really is different. So it's a, been a pretty interesting transition. One of my favorite parts is seeing the uh, all the executives that I usually interact with in person on the cameras, like without their suits on. <laughs> I'm like, yes! I was like, that's what you look like as a human. I love it. Yeah. I, I'm pretty, I'm not, I usually don't wear a, you know, a suit when I'm programming, but uh, I definitely, <laughs> I definitely like when I get to see people like in their raw self, like who they are. And then I like the people who you can tell when you meet them that they are exactly who they are. I like right. those people a lot too. Like I get that vibe with you a lot. Like when I see you and hear you talk and when we were talking before a couple, couple days ago or last week, when I heard like the passion in your voice about what you're doing and like, I'm just like, this person is an authentic individual and I like talking to those types of people. Oh, thank you. I, I strive for authenticity. It's one of my goals. So I appreciate that. Knocking it out of the park. So what, do you, what are you working on these days? Well, my, my history is very much in software engineering. Um, as CTO for Red Hat, my job is, uh, it's simultaneously exciting and daunting, right? Like it's this big task. We have a very large product portfolio. Um, we have a ton of technology that we incorporate into our product portfolio and as a result pay attention to those particular areas um, so my role is to keep our technology strategy um, fresh and moving forward in the context of changing emerging technology trends as well as changing emerging market um, ways that the market consumes technology uh, so in one sense, my job is static and that I'm always looking at emerging technologies and emerging market spaces. Um, but because of the fundamental changes associated with that, things are always changing. Things are always new and it, and it gives me a lot of opportunity for learning. Um, right now, ton of focus on besides how do we work well remotely from home. Um, the, the transition, I think the industry is going through, which is, uh, very much around data as a central actor to our, our customer base is the enterprise. Um, so what does data mean to the enterprise? How do you, who's creating data? How do you process data? Machine learning is almost intrinsic in that conversation. It's not always about machine learning, but it's really, really a common part of the conversation. 
Um, and certainly open source, the technologies that are evolving in open source, containers being a really clear area where projects like Linux and Kubernetes combined have really changed what people think about when they think of computing platforms and, and application platforms. Uh, you know, those are the areas where I'm spending my time thinking of how you connect it all and what's, what, what is the impacts on Red Hat's um, long-term view in terms of our products and our portfolio and, and what our customers need to be successful. So kind of a, kind of a lot of stuff, fun, but daunting at times. Yeah. That's why we need that exercise to keep our mind, mind that's straight. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's a little meditative space where you can collect your thoughts, get creative, maybe just check out. And I find, you know what I've been, I've had this like internal dialogue recently about how when I'm working out and it becomes like difficult, you know, when you, right before you start to like really feel good, it's like my mind's focused on like one singular thing. It's like that workout. And it's pretty clear. It's like, you know, you, you do the reps, you lift the weight and it's just this, this unique, like almost meditative state. And I, and I feel like that, like relaxing your brain like that gives you more energy uh, for later when you have to solve like tough problems because I, I've kind of been imagining it like it's like a like a processor it's like but if it's, it's like overclocked if you're like if and if you're always thinking 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 but when you create these separate separations and when yeah. you create these these areas of time where you're not thinking about that type of stuff and you're, and you're not thinking at that uh, level of depth and then you you go into like this concentrated I, I do work blocks I don't know how you do it, but I, I do these like work blocks throughout the day mm -hmm. and I, and I structure my day like that. But it, then it, I notice my mind, my mind's stronger. It's like a muscle. If you're always working it out, it's never going to heal. Right. No, I agree. I, I, was, I was thinking about this recently. Um, where do ideas crystallize for me in general? Like, and it, partially it's the physical location, partially it's the activity. Um, it's certainly not always in the act of working. And sometimes it is, and that's because of a focused work block, like you described, you've really got a, an intention and I'm working on you know, working with an idea. The two places not work uh, related that ideas really surface for me or clear thought crystallizing um, how I think about a problem. One is on the bike. So in the saddle, uh, the other is in the shower. I was thinking, Okay, what does that mean? But like, what's what's going on in those two spots? And one, I don't know if this is important or not, but in both of those cases, I'm totally disconnected from devices. Right? There's no outside stimulus from emails and texts, and you know, the the, the desire to go scroll down a Twitter feed or something like that. Um, and associated with that is maybe just letting your mind wander, uh, and specifically on the bike when you're really pushing yourself hard and the only thing you're doing is focusing on how much your muscles are burning and breathing, there is, there's just nothing else happening. And may, I kind of have the sense like you were describing, there's something in the back of your brain that's either relaxing or is completely not needed so it can work at these other problems or, you know, it, it just creates a new space. And, and I think it's really critical. I think it's fundamental to um, even maybe the creation of, of ideas and how you create some separation uh, so you don't just burn yourself out over clock and overheat. Yeah. I, I think that the science will catch up eventually, 
right? One day they'll, they'll be able to measure it somehow. And then it'll be like breaking news. <laughs> you need time off from work to do better. Yeah. <laughs> the new productivity study. So I'm, I'm excited to be talking with you a lot of, I like the future. I'm a huge fan of the future. Uh, I'm not a fan of like the Boston dynamics taking over the world future. I am a fan of like Boston dynamics, building really cool things future. Um, but yeah. I want to know because you're, you're in there, man, you're in there with data all day. You're in there with the cloud. You're in there with what customers are doing on the edge. Like I want to know what, what's the, what's going on in the future? Well, that's a, that's an open-ended question that I, I get asked a variant of it a lot. And, um, one thing that I, I like to say that's not as exciting is there is a key element to the future which is, I'll say, less disruptive and more an evolution of a series of ideas, many of which we already know. Um, and the reason it's not as exciting is it's not like, well, you know, robots and spaceships and, you know, imagine this shiny new world that we, that we can't imagine today. Um, but if you think about how new ideas are formed, so much of it is leveraging our current experience. And so to me, in the, in the context of open source software, building infrastructure and platforms for, for enterprises to build their businesses upon, um, I think the future is a combination of uh, a lot of devices. You've heard a lot about the Internet of Things or the inter Internet of Everything or all these kind of buzzwords that give you the sense that device proliferation is a, is a key part of the future. Um, Devices create and consume data. In order to create and consume data in any way that's meaningful for the rest of the world, they need to be connected. So there's a network piece that's really important there. The piece that's processing all of that data historically has been compute platforms in the data center. And I think a big shift right now is moving that, those same compute platforms closer to the data. And we're calling that edge computing, although it's had other names at various points in time, and most broadly, you just call it distributed computing. Um, and the data processing being really what people are, enterprises are looking to, to build value for themselves. So data by itself, not necessarily valuable. Understanding patterns and trends in data can be particularly powerful and valuable for, for businesses. So I think the the combination of a smartphone and a 4G network and a cloud created about a decade ago opportunities for businesses to do things that just we take for granted today. Ten years ago, we couldn't really imagine. I think that the combination of device proliferation, not just smartphones, but other devices, um, 5G connectivity, which changes some of the network dynamics, and edge computing give rise to that same, what is it going to look like in 10 years? A little hard to imagine, but I know that these are fundamental building blocks to creating a new wave of you know, fundamentally changed businesses. And you'll hear a lot about augmented reality and virtual reality and autonomous cars and drones and things that are, they're fun to talk about, um, but they're, I think 
it's just much more pervasive and a really practical application that's topical today would be telemedicine. How do you connect doctors and patients remotely uh, in the context of, of a pandemic? Uh, this, this is a really timely discussion to have. Uh, and so I think that we're building refinements on what we've already known and those create building blocks for what you might call disruptive businesses, but each, Technology change itself isn't sort of fundamental and uh, you know amazing. Um, it's it's more incremental and, and and an evolution of ideas, which I think is super powerful. You've got now you've got my mind going. Right? <laughs> so like let's boil it down. Let's let's talk about like one specific thing that that. Well, I guess what was going on in my mind was this concept of like the edge, like what's the edge going to look like in the future? So let's first talk about, I, I first want to know, like help me build a, a visual mental image of what the edge is today. Okay. The edge is a good one because it's fuzzy. It means different things to different people. Um, so how do we bring that into focus? I describe the edge. If you imagine an onion and each layer in the onion has an edge, um, if you, if you go across the industry and talk to different people, their perspective or their context or the layer in the onion in which they live will help them define what they call the edge. Um, so you could define the edge from within a large data center, um, being the, a portion of your edge being what's connecting you out to say a public cloud. People might call that the data center edge or the cloud edge, depending on whether you're coming from the cloud inwards or from the data center outwards. Um, you have, when you get into a single business, distributing their compute across a set of remote offices and branch offices, sometimes called robo, um, each of those compute stacks sitting in those stores could be called edge compute um, platforms. If you go into a manufacturing, automation scenario, the machines that are sitting on the autom manufacturing floor help helping automate the process of manufacturing goods could be considering edge. They're certainly not in the data center of the, of the manufacturer. The telecommunications industry has a network. The network has an edge. That edge, often called the provider edge, is providing services to, to, their, to their customers. Provider edge is a place that could go all the way out to, some people will describe it as um, a lamp post or a base station where you've got antenna, can come one hop in where you might have a, uh, a central office, which is gonna have enough space where you could put a small rack. So, you know, this, we have edge computing devices that sit on oil rigs because the rig itself is littered with sensors which don't have enough compute capacity. They're, you know, they're filtering data into a, an edge device. So there's many different ways you can, you can view the edge. Uh, and one of the things that, that we look at from a Red Hat perspective is, okay, there's going to be some, some consistency. One, you're going to have to run applications. Two, a likely application delivery vehicle is a container. Uh, three, there's probably some data processing that's critical to the workload. Uh, for data processing is probably going to benefit from 
hardware acceleration. When you're sitting in an environment where you're power and space constrained, you need to super optimize um, your hardware platform for the application workload that's running on top of it. Uh, and maybe five, lots of those devices across the edge become fundamentally distributed. So distributed management is, is critical. So it kind of plays out in all these different dimensions. You could call any one of those earlier examples edge. They don't all have the same footprint. Some could be a full rack of gear. Some maybe just a ruggedized single server device that's sitting sitting outside, even exposed to the public. So security concerns look look different. So pretty pretty broad spectrum. That has to be the single best explanation I've ever heard of Edge, and it explains yeah. why yeah. I was so confused. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's good. Because I get to talk to people from all different industries and all different markets, and yeah. and I had an idea. Like I had, you know, my idea, and it was close to that. But when you can articulate something with a visual, like an onion, that was brilliant. That like the onion one. Come on, man, <laughs> that's amazing. All right, I'll take. I that. love that. <laughs> yeah, that is really. We're gonna like clip that and post that on like LinkedIn and everything. <laughs> that is that is such a good visual because you instantly understand how a, how a collection of people nearby can all have an edge and it all be similar but different. Yeah, exactly. So, data is is now going to be moving, I guess, to the edge, right? There mm -hmm. and there's a lot of good use cases when we're talking about like processing data more locally all the way down to like I've heard Tesla and some other companies are like manufacturing their own silicon to be you know, more specific to the task that they're doing right, right. that I guess you could say that's kind of like the edge yeah. um, like hardware specific stuff for the edge but you know I watch those graphs you know of the data exponentially increasing right and then I look at our processing power and I'm a geek as far as like always being interested in when are we going to have uh, an artificial intelligence that can socially replicate humans. For some reason, I'm interested in that. Mm -hmm. uh, doesn't need to be powerful, just like social replication. Yeah. And I started to to look into that and look at how you would store memories and all of that and data. And and I realized that the we're going to definitely be limited by our computing power. Like we are, we I think we're we're limited today by our computing power. Like if I want to do some really cool task. I ran, I ran some of the, the numbers. It would cost me ridiculous amounts of money and it would take a long time to process some of the things I was, I was previously, like two years ago that I was looking at processing. And I was like, whoa, you know, we're so advanced. I can run huge queries really fast or what I can, uh, uh, huge queries to my context of my previous experience, right? right? And cause like the new kids coming into the game, they're just like, we need more, we need more. Yeah. Um, but yeah, looking back at it, I'm like, we, we're definitely limited by our ability to process data. I completely agree, which I'll, I'll sidetrack for one second. My, my background, I've spent a lot of time uh, doing development in the operating system. I'm a, I'm a kernel developer in, in a big chunk of what I've contributed to open source communities. Couldn't be a cooler place to be sitting uh, as a kernel developer when you're like, there's all this new hardware um, because what does an operating system do? Well, one of its key tasks is enable hardware so that user space applications can get access to that hardware. And the, the cloud spent the first half of the last decade propagating 
a total lie or at least a myth. And that, that lie is that all compute cycles are created equally. Uh, and there, and so we got that from, well, there's small, medium, large compute, and that's about all you need. And it's, it's good for any application. If, if you look at a cloud today, a public cloud, and you look at the number of machine types or instance types, there are well over 100, 125 different variants. And if you look carefully at what those variants are, it's varying ways of using hardware to accelerate certain types of application workloads. It's big memory, it's high IO for data, it's high IO for networking, it's you know, more powerful compute cycles, more cores. Uh, it, there's all of the, there's GPUs, TPUs, tensor cores, there's all of these different ways that you can accelerate workloads. And so I think when you look at where compute's going, um, number one, data is a critical driver. So how do you move it um, effectively? Uh, how do you process it effectively? And the, the, the outcome looks like a heterogeneous computing environment where computers are scheduling tasks that are going to be better executed on certain types of silicon. And so there's specialization because we're kind of reaching some practical limitations of traditional classical digital computers in terms of whether you call it Moore's law or Denard scaling, how, how many transistors can you fit on a CPU without it melting down? Uh, we're starting to hit some li limits of physics. And you, so you haven't seen CPU speeds increase much in the last few years. You're, you see core counts go up, um, but an individual thread is just running roughly at the same speed. And then you're seeing system, systems level views of improving performance, connections to memory and IO, uh, ways to look at memory like it's storage, uh, so, you know, ways to, to improve the overall throughput of a system without necessarily changing the clock speed of a CPU. Uh, so from an OS point of view, it's pretty exciting. Um, from a data processing point of view, I think it's, it's fundamental and it's just strictly required to have this heterogeneous computing environment. And uh, we've already seen GPUs take on a lot of the tasks of uh, deep learning, machine learning, uh, type of workloads. There's also a question of what you were talking about, scale, um, massive amounts of data and training data typically happening in a large, more centralized location like a cloud or a data center. The model that's associated with that is to, could, typically, could be put to an edge device used for inference, which has a different set of computing requirements. Uh, but we also need to connect these two. Uh, so you can't just train the algorithm one time, deploy the model, you're gonna have some feedback. Uh, distributed learning, I think, is a really important question that we need to be able to answer for ourselves. How can we give feedback to models without shipping all of the data um, all of the time because it's impractical? So I think there's a ton of really interesting challenges that are en end up being grounded in some hardware questions, like how is hardware evolving? And heterogeneous compute, I think, is a, a logical conclusion and one that we're already seeing today. Um, in not just edge, but in general, cross-compute landscape. So we reached the limit in physics of, of clock speeds of what we could do. And then we start into some specialization areas. But is there anyone working on the like first principles? Like let's go back and see if there's a, there's a different way to do this from the ground up. Is there anyone in that market? 
there, there definitely is. Um, there's a whole world, and this this is maybe not suited for every computing problem, uh, but there's a whole world of research that's happening in the quantum computing space. Um, so quantum computing changes the notion of a binary bit to a quantum bit or a qubit, and that qubit, the association of a, a probabilistic likelihood that you're in a zero or one state is a very different expression from you're either a zero or one. And the applications for quantum computing uh, get really interesting in certain areas like um, life sciences, where we meet, how do you model the universe in a meaningful way that doesn't take uh, you know, hundreds or thousands of years of classical compute cycles to understand the ways two molecules interact or you know, put it into a context like today. Uh, how do you do uh, matching of genetics and potential um, drugs in, for, for humans? Uh, you know, that there's real, those are really complicated sort of maybe math centric modeling problems that are not as not going to be as efficient on the classical digital computer. Quantum computers are working in a direction that are trying to help us answer those questions that might have taken a hundred years in, you know, a, a matter of hours. So we could actually get some meaningful um, insights that are, fundamentally new and different from where we are today. Do you know Bob Suter? Yeah, yeah. Red, Red Hat was recently acquired by IBM. Bob Suter is a uh, IBM employee who's also uh, a, a lead person always out speaking about their quantum computing efforts. So I've actually listened to a couple of podcasts he's done, which are which have been really informative. Yeah, I, I talked with him a few months ago and he brought up the example of like how when we model a drug, like the digital representation is this abstraction that's not close to the level of detail of the actual uh, molecule sure. or whatever the organic structure he used. And that, you know, these, these qubits happen to have some special specialty areas. And I actually see our, I don't know, I don't have like a data backup i just have a gut feeling on this i think that we're going to see a, a bigger biological market emerge uh, i think we're going to get smarter with our our drugs and our health and uh human enhancements right um i've been watching like the different artificial limbs you can get if you if you lose an arm or something those things have just like soon it's going to be better just to have a, a bionic <laughs> arm <laughs> right right like people at the wood factory start drinking on the job. They're like, maybe. No, just <laughs> we'll see. No, I probably not. But <laughs> probably it's, not. it's true that um, there's a lot of amazing advances that are happening in the medical world. And one of the things that I think is, is, is interesting is um, some of those are just pure technology. So this example of how do you apply a quantum computer to, um, you know, modeling of, of, how could you eliminate a whole set of time associated to testing drugs with humans by doing really sophisticated modeling that aren't based on these kind of compression techniques, you know, 
an analog signal to a digital signal, there's compression and, and it can be lossy. Um, so how do you just really model the, the core, um, say, elemental interactions? I think that's super exciting and, and holds a lot of promise. Um, but also in the, in the medical field, actually, even with artificial limbs, where are communities evolving that help develop the ideas and concepts and techniques behind the creation of, you know, we've seen interesting open source efforts around um, the manufacturing of a, an artificial limb driven by people who are really understanding how it impacts their lives because it's a limb that they're going to use and they're directly involved in the ability to, to create some of the, the ideas and concepts behind it, or, or there's an open source um, project that helps uh, people with, uh, I believe with diabetes, manage their blood sugar levels and, and the ways that you, you manage your dosing so that you don't have to worry about setting a timer and you know checking your blood sugar levels and maybe you miss the timer. Um, and it could be a really life-threatening situation. How can you create an artificial uh, organ, essentially, that's really helping keep your body highly functional, driven from open source projects from people who are passionate, typically because they're directly affected um, about the topic. That's a great example of the power of human collaboration and creating ideas that are bigger than any one person, um, which is really core to what open source is all about. I mean, I, I, I just love that. I love that we're sharing ideas and, and growing our collective knowledge and our capabilities through, through the sharing of ideas. So you guys have a couple platforms. You have a couple platforms. Uh, you believe that they should be open. You guys have open sources is at your core. I want to talk a little bit about some of the platforms you guys have, but I also want to talk about this concept of uh, like open source becoming mainstream. Uh, and like, how do you, how do you keep the culture? How do you keep it cool when it goes mainstream? It's like music, right? <laughs> That's right. Um, from a platform point of view, what we're focused on is, is an area that we would call open hybrid cloud. Um, and the hybrid cloud is taking the cloud concept, which is how do you create an environment where operationally, it's a managed service. So you have this experience of total ease of, of operations. Uh, and then from a, from a developer point of view, it is highly efficient because it's got everything you need in terms of your core dependencies for your application available as APIs and just services that you consume, maybe even in many cases externally from your application or your core kind of quote unquote business logic. So we're building a cloud that, enables developers and operations teams to span both your internal data center as well as out to a public cloud. And the platform that we use is Linux and Kubernetes based. And this is also something that we stretch out to what I would call the edge, um, independent of exactly which part of the edge you're talking about. Uh, and so that is all being built, the technology components behind that are all being built in open source communities. And if you look at any large scale public cloud, the cloud itself is built off of core open source technologies. Um, many cloud providers have 
something like a Kubernetes service. So even if you get to a specific project like Kubernetes, they're available um, in clouds. And so the idea that open source has gone into a very mainstream part of what is today's business is 100% real. I mean, imagine your day and the search engine queries that you do, the social media interactions that you have, the online ordering that you might be doing, every single one of those experiences are supported in a large part by open source software. Um, not all stuff that Red Hat products, I'm talking much broader, the whole open source ecosystem. So what I think that's interesting in there is, okay, open source is now this mainstream way to do development. You, you can't have the talent pool in a single company um, today, the way you could have a talent pool spread literally around the globe in an open source community it creates a very different potential for what happens inside a development project. Um, the challenge is with all of this success built around open source technologies and projects, how do we keep the core of the culture of, of who we are as open source developers alive? Um, how do you keep that kind of grassroots way of um, engaging with one another? How do you ensure that all of the financial motivations that are associated with business success don't sort of taint the, the true developer experience where we're trying to build the best technologies and solve problems the most effective and creative ways. Um, I think that's a real challenge. And I think the risk is we, you know, we've, we've gone mainstream, we get distorted, you lose some of your soul, um, and, and as a result, lose some of the magic, which makes open source projects so incredibly effective and, and valuable for the, for the, it's not just the industry, it's the planet at large for, for people and how we do compute. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty interested in that topic. Uh, I've got some ideas. I think it's something that we'll have to percolate on for, for a little while as we try to understand where, uh, what it means to create these communities and build technology together in this modern, we've gone mainstream world. I saw like the, the GitHub, I don't know if it released, but I know that they were talking about it where you could do like some payments to help maintain open source projects. What are your thoughts on that type of stuff? Well, I think it's, I mean, anything we can do to inspire more open source developers is good um, in my mind. Um, the, the, one of the successes of open source has been going mainstream means a lot of developers are professionally employed to write code in open source communities. So that's a good thing. Um, there's a, there's pluses and minuses of how you direct that funding. Um, and there's foundations that have looked at fellow fellowships. Um, there's different ways to do the um, spread the commercial success across community developers where um, you're, you know, you're not relying on the creation of a product. Uh, and so I, you know, I think being creative is important, trying all, out these ideas. Uh, I, I'm not sure what the best model is, you know, the, the GitHub model, other models. Uh, many companies like Red Hat are just employing developers, not just, are employing developers to be directly involved in the open source communities. And that's a critical part of the community's success. Um, the, 
yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of ways we could, we could tackle that one. What do you, what do you think, I guess, like, what would you say, because you have a lot of experience in open source and community and things like that, but on an open source project, what, what do you think some of the most important things are for the success of that project about building community around it? Um, I think one is that clarity of mission, people are rallying around a common cause. The collaboration aspect of an open source community is we're collaborating together to solve a problem that we think is important. And I think that's typically a little easier because software tends to have features and functionality that are focused on the problem domain. But even with that, um, we've seen some projects take on such a broad scope that it gets hard to know where to prioritize. And then the project itself can um, just stagnate because it's, it's internally thrashing with a, a lack of clarity of what, what are the most important things to work on. Um, there's another piece, which I think is super, super important. If you think about who is involved in an open source community project, uh, well, it's people, it's human beings. And what happens in an open source project is a collection of trust relationships are created. And that's probably the most fundamental thing that builds um, the, the connectivity or health inside a community. Because if you don't have trust across the different members of your community, you'll, you'll just be dysfunctional in the end. Uh, and the reason I think that's so important is that's a very human element. And we tend to think in terms of code and features and number of commits and you know all these metrics that don't necessarily incorporate how are you building trust relationships between the humans that are involved in your community. Uh, there's another piece that I think is really critical, and that is diversity. And I would put diversity into two separate categories. One is diversity of the people involved. The more diverse you have um, ideas and ways of thinking or contexts that you're bringing to a project, I think the healthier, more vibrant, and more resilient the project will be. Similarly, um, for certain types of projects that are very platform-oriented, onboarding a diverse set of workloads onto the platform being capable of supporting a wide variety of use cases um, creates a type of value for users. It creates, it, I would say it, it requires a kind of architectural discipline and even cleanliness because you're going to need to adapt the software to take on new use cases. And it means the focus of long-term maintainability becomes a critical part of the community's development process. And a great example of that would be Linux, which as an operating system has had to adapt to running on the smallest devices to the world's largest supercomputers, all sorts of different application workloads over the course of a couple of decades. And it's that diversity in workloads and in this case, compute environments that it's supporting or hardware environments that it's supporting that's created something that's got longevity and the internal code refactoring needed to support that has created a sustainable architecture. So different ways to look at diversity, but you know, I think those are, those are some key aspects 
some clarity of what you're trying to do, building a collaborative environment, which requires trust, having a diverse set of users and, and developers involved in the project, bringing a disparate set of, you know, a diverse set of use cases and perspectives to the development process, I think really build sustainable, maintainable, resilient uh, open source projects. I can tell you thought about this a lot. This is awesome. <laughs> I, this is this is good. It's like it's like you have a lifetime of experience in this area or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's not every day you get to talk about the things that you love about uh, that you love. So it's pretty fun, dude. That's why we come here, right? Yeah, yeah, I love that. That's what I love about it. It's like let's just hang out, talk about what you guys want to talk about, and just have fun. Because you know that's that's like the most important thing. If we can talk about what people want to talk about, then that then just an entirely different conversation. That's why I like to leave it open and flexible when we hang out. Uh, and really it's one of the reasons why like I kept going with the show because I would look on some other clips and they would be like very rigid. And I was like, I want to get to know this human. I want to know like what they think about and, and in long form versus like a, you know, 30 second Sound clip. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's true. Anybody can say the words. If it, how do you, contextualize it so that it's clear you're relating it to your own experience which helps others relate to the experience uh, i think it's important yeah a hundred percent shared experience bonds us now uh, i was pretty excited about summit uh, but i heard is summit now going to be virtual yes yeah, so like many um we, we 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 had to decide what to do about red hat summit which is our annual big conference, which is a very much a face-to-face -face event. Uh, you know, we bring together thousands of our customers and uh, a lot of our developers to give um, presentations about what we're doing, the state of the art, the places we're going. It's a super fun event. And given the context that we're living in, in this world with COVID-19, we had to make the call to say, this isn't going to work as a physical face-to-face -face event. We made the call to move it to a virtual event. Uh, it's, at, it's at the end of April and we'll, we'll certainly have to change course a little bit. The a, a eight hour day multi-track format just isn't quite the same format that makes sense in a virtual environment, uh, but we're being super creative. Our creative team is amazing. Uh, they've got a lot of awesome ideas of how we can get content out there in an interactive way so we don't lose the ability to engage with our with our audience, who's largely our, our customer base. Um, so we'll be doing a, a virtual event uh, at the end of the month and talking about all the things we would talk about at Red Hat Summit, which is our products, our portfolio, the things we're doing, the ways the ways that our customers are using what we're doing to solve really amazing problems for themselves, uh, and even where that elevates the entire industry segment that those customers sit in. So really exciting way uh, to look at technology and how it impacts people. And it's just going to move from a physical event to a virtual event. And it's kind of an experiment on a certain level. And many other companies are having to go through similar um, experiences. And my personal hope is that it's successful in a way that we can think about what events mean to, you know, all of us involved. Um, I travel a lot uh, and there's 
the carbon footprint associated with that. There's the effectiveness of sharing information face-to-face -face versus virtually that I think we can explore. Um, and so I think it's an opportunity to really see what happens. And not, not that our event's the only one that's going to fundamentally change the world, but we're just in this process of um, collectively learning. And Red Hat Summit is one of those events that will be a virtual event. And I look forward to how we learn from that and, and you know, really how we can grow from uh, the traditional event model, which is, uh, it's been around for quite a while. So maybe it's time for some innovation in that space. You guys will do well. I mean, you have a really good creative team, uh, really smart people all around. I saw the, um, you gave me this link before our last call and I like freaked out when I saw it. So it was a link for the edge website. It was, was that just like a single blog post? Yeah. That it was. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it almost doesn't work to call it that. Cause when you scroll through, it's a little different, but it's, it's a really experience. compelling space to discuss edge computing. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just an example of the amazing work that our creative team does. We should send them a note after this and, and we'll, we'll clip the onion explanation and see if they can turn that into a visualization. I'm sure they would be able to. <laughs> because like that, and I'm going to post links in the show notes so everyone that's listening can go. But, you know, people that listen to the show, they know that like I'm a huge fan of design and animation, like really good quality brand and messaging. Like I'm just a big fan of it. And when I saw this page, I was like, this is unbelievable. It was, it had like this like subtle yet brilliant animation. And I mean, there's good content too, <laughs> <laughs> but it's about, the, it's about edge. It's about edge computing. It had some history. They like animated up some like older computers and told and there was storytelling in there and everything. And it was just like, yeah. I bookmarked it as a favorite because it, it's something that I'm like in the future, I'm going to need to tell someone I want to build a page like this. Right. And this is the, this is the example I'm going to give them. That's fantastic. We'll have to give them, make sure they get that yeah. feedback because it, it is, it's fun to work with creative people. I spend most of my time in more of an engineering context. So the creativity is focused on code and features, but I love the uh, working with a creative team and, and understanding how to, harness that creativity either visually. So images just pop out and you understand what somebody's trying to, to portray just with an image or even in that storytelling arc. Like how do you, how do you, how do you give, bring somebody along the journey uh, where it's not just the bits and bytes, but it's the whole infusion of um, an integrated experience or, you know, a journey, making a journey out of it. And it, it's, I've learned a lot from the creative team. Oh yeah. I just noticed that like great people tend to collect together. Right. So I got to talk to you and I was like, Oh, this guy's brilliant. And then I find, and I got to talk to Will and some other people on your PR team. They gave us like amazing storylines and stuff and notes. And I was like, Oh, this is so good. And like each, you know, I've interacted with, you know, your brand as much as most people do uh, with the fact that you guys basically power the internet. <laughs> <laughs> right. But the, the services that you guys have and the platforms and how you're pushing forward, everything is just like, I just have a lot of respect for you guys. Like, did you think or like 20 years ago when, when you knew what Linux was, did you think that you'd be the CTO there? I can honestly say no. Um, <laughs> and I can, I could probably expand it out a little bit and say, yeah, 20 years ago, 
working in open source software, hacking away at Linux was a passion. Um, it was a way to learn. For me, luckily, even that long ago, it was also a job. So I got to spend some time professionally working on open source software. I never imagined 20 years later the impact that open source would have just in general across the industry, uh, you know, sounds crazy to say it, but to humanity. Um, Cause it felt like a fringe radical movement. And we spent a lot of time either just working on our own projects or maybe if we're lucky trying to convince somebody that we weren't crazy and they should be, they should run this software. Um, and today it's, you know, the mainstream discussion we had earlier today, it's very much a part of the mainstream. And then personally, I didn't anticipate where I would be in 20 years. You know, that, that kind of uh, interview question of what do you want in five years? I'd barely be able to answer that, let alone where do you see yourself in, in 20 years? And so my 20 year ago self um, couldn't imagine being in a position where I'm CTO of Red Hat and Red Hat is, um, you know, a $4 billion company now acquired by IBM in the world's largest software acquisition in history. I mean, just, it's amazing that the trajectory um, personally that I've been on, but also more broadly where open source has, has come. It's just, it's staggering. It's awesome. It's phenomenal. I get, a, I get a lot of people that'll ask me, oh, like, you know, what's the secret? And I'm just like hard work over a long period of time. <laughs> <laughs> like, right. But you, you have been on this journey and you have put in your 20, 20 years, but I guess rather than saying what's your secret, right? What sort of patterns in behavior in yourself have you noticed benefited you? The, the first word that comes to mind is, uh, curiosity. So being curious and learning and wanting to know more, understand more has been a really important, just, I don't know, characteristic attribute tool uh, for me. In the beginning, that, that was open source. The curiosity was with all the source, you can dig in and see how things work. Um, today, I might be asking different questions uh, to of the people around me. And, and maybe related to that curiosity, and this is a harder one, uh, you know, for me, and I think other others as well, not being afraid to ask questions. Um, even when you might be convinced that everybody else already knows the answer and you're the one person who's still clueless, you know, that, that kind of, um, curiosity, I don't know if that's just humility. Um, but the, those, those two things I think are, are really, really valuable. Um, and then, having the ability to communicate has been super important and for me and um i i'm i'm an engineer i'm a nerd i love the 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 details um but you also have to work with people and communicate your ideas to people and influence people to do things and it's not necessarily um binary or black and white or just the best idea that's the most influential sometimes ideas are hard to understand and um, sometimes people's motivations just are going a different direction because they're thinking about solving things in a different way and so how do you communicate and build some bridges just 
I'd say more at a human level, um, it's been a, a really important way that I've uh, interacted and I find it a, an important part of, the way, put it this way, when I talk to our engineers in our, in our company about what does it mean to be a technical leader, it's, it's not just being the smartest person in the room. Um, being, being capable and bright is, is super important. Um, so you, you bring a lot with just your, your intellect, but being able to work with people and influence people to move in a common direction, that's a critical part of technical leadership. And I'm not sure that we always emphasize that enough. Um, even in open source communities where it's so focused on, you know, the best ideas win, um, you don't want to marginalize people and, and, um, give people the sense that their contributions aren't valuable, even if they're not merged into the code base. So how do you balance that, uh, that discussion or the dialogue about a feature without making it a personal attack? Oh, that's a dumb idea. Uh, you know, that's to be blunt. That's kind of an asshole move. And the way I describe it is we don't need assholes, right? We need really yeah. smart, uh, in, engaging, uh, thoughtful people who are also capable of being influential by, asking some of the right questions and not being uh, close-minded. Yeah. I've, I've thought a lot about that because we have a leadership company, like technology leadership for technologists company. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, you're always looking for like value propositions and how the market's moving. And one of the like continual, like it keeps popping up as like a, like an idea or, or just keeps recurring in the back of my head. Like it's, it's hard to measure. Like when people think of efficiency, or teams, you, I found that their defaults, like they go to tools, like, oh, I'm going to use this type of tracker, I'm going to use this type of analytics system, I'm going to use this, this or that. And then I found like, I had this thought one day, I was like, if you did reject someone's merge, right? You're like, nope, <laughs> and, and like with no explanation, like that human interaction, like how do you measure how much productivity that just killed of that individual? Yeah. You know, like how do you measure that? And like, how do you then, connect that back to a business case. I haven't found a great way of doing it yet, but it's definitely something that like, I know, I feel, I see happening in teams. And then I was just working with our sales team trying to figure out like exactly how to do that. But it's definitely important. How you treat people is directly connected to their productivity, to like everything. Yeah, I, I love that question. And I could think of ways of sort of playing with that idea. Um, there, I, I worked with an analyst group who recently did a study that they referred to developer velocity and its impact on a company's revenue. And they, I think we're introducing the notion, maybe it's not their own, of DVI, developer velocity index. And companies with a higher DVI or developer velocity index have generate three times more revenue than businesses like themselves with a lower uh, you know, in a similar area of the market, but with a lower developer velocity. So you could kind of ask yourself, maybe from a, that, that same question you're asking, uh, how diverse is, are your inputs across your developer pool? And if you see, it's always the same few people's code being merged and everybody else is hearing no. Is there a way you can measure velocity, not just pure code commits, but also um, the number of people who are committing and you, you might even be able to see people who are consistently um, uh, not 
not being encouraged to continue to participate really slow down and 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 fade away and in some cases that might be a hard decision where it's a person who's not being very productive in the in the project um, in other cases it could be uh, how you're handling the communication of you know did you need to say no and then go write it yourself and merge it or could you say no and give some constructive feedback and give the person some direct guidance of how to improve it and then merge their code. And the end result is the right idea got merged. The difference is the process that you used to get there and how empowering that was for the person who either heard no with some feedback or just heard no rejected. And wow. And I similar looking idea just got merged by this other person. And that's totally de demoralizing or demotivating. Do you guys do that? Do you guys measure your like velocity? Do you have any favorite tools for that? Well, the short answer is no, um, in terms of what I was describing it. So the way we, we look externally at metrics and communities would be, um, pretty basic and that's commits per time period. Um, internally we do keep metrics, but similar, it tends to be more status around commits. Um, and, we're very careful not to use commits as an incentive because you get terrible outcomes. <laughs> <laughs> you telling um, me, man, but, everything's a commit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'm going to change, Oh, you know, change a word. I could submit however many letters in that word, subsequent pull requests to slowly re rewrite that word. Like uh, that would be a terrible way to, to, to build your code base. But, um, you know, th those are just more informative. You get a sense of overall, productivity or, or activity is a better way to put it um just by looking at the at the commit rate i don't know how much detailed analysis we do down to per developer per project or ways that you know, i think you could do some natural language processing looking at the language that developers use when they communicate with each other and seeing the sentiment analysis of developers and associating that with um the quality and velocity of, of code that's going into the project. I, I'm, I'm sure it'd be a fascinating way to research. Yeah. You could probably build some custom dictionaries too, off of like repos, like extract comments from repos that have more success to figure out like what the terminology is, right? Cause the standard dictionary is not going to do perfect Yeah, with all of our like lead speak. L LGTM <laughs> is probably not a common uh, a part of any normal dictionary. And that sort of a terse response um, out of context might be thought of as rude in context. That's two thumbs up. Looks good to me. Like that's as good as being committed. So it context matters as well. Is there anything else that we didn't cover that we want to get out there today? Um, I talked about data before and I talked about, um, you know, the, the importance of data, how it's kind of this data to me as a central actor in the enterprise. And I think there's the, the movement of data, which is the connectivity that, that all, all the pieces were things like 5g and Wi-Fi six and, you know, new networking technologies and edge bringing compute closer to data are really important. The compute environment around data processing inclusive of heterogeneous compute focused on machine learning as a, critical workload. Um, there's also the storage of data uh, and data is because it's this central actor moving your mindset towards not should I store it, but the answer is just yes. 
Um, and cause you learn sometimes later that it was valuable and you can't go back in time and store it. So get, you know, we're seeing people be really interested in just collecting large volumes of data. Uh, and then the relationship between data in motion, um, and data stored and the analytics combined, I think all brought together in a single platform is sort of unique for the, for where we are in the, in the world today. Um, and so typically in the past you had more like a storage platform, um, an application platform, maybe a data lake and a Hadoop kind of data analytics platform. And they, these are separate. What I think is really interesting today with containers and Kubernetes becoming this, this really common building block for, for the industry is bringing these together on a common platform. It's, it's really a powerful way for people to build their infrastructure and harness um, the, the value out of data. And we've been doing a lot of work to bring data more directly integrated into our platform. So it's container native, container accessible when you're in a containerized application environment. Uh, and I think that's, it's, it's important. And the, um, so the one piece that, that I wanted to touch on was that storage component. We, you know, we talk a lot about movement, a lot about the application or, or the, the analytics and processing of data, but also storing data and just collecting what you can because you'll find value in it later. I love it, dude. We we're doing it, man. We're make, we make a podcast and you weren't in the, in the tiny little closet. <laughs> Good. <laughs> you feel good? Yeah, uh, yeah. I feel I feel good. I've got uh, nothing but a mellow day ahead of me. I can actually get some fo- time to focus on a few projects that I'm working on. Uh, and I really enjoyed talking with you. It's 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 fun to have just a a discussion, communication. Uh, I learned something new. I got a great um, shout out I can bring back to the creative team. So. It's been a, yeah, been the a really onion. nice time. Dude, the onion, I, I'm sure you've said that before because it was so articulate, but hearing it for the first time, it was like mic drop. I was like, <laughs> I can already see the animation on the creative page. And it's just like, in, in 30 seconds, you completely took something that was fuzzy. And I mean, yes, the people that you get, when you go speak in front of crowds, they get to hear it. But like we, I'll do any, everything I can to amplify that out. Um, right as much as possible because cool. it's, it's, it's just brilliant. Good. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. And are you outside of Boston? Are you like in downtown Boston? I'm seven miles due North, which is that, that's not like Westchester, is it? Or I'm sorry. That's not, uh, that Westchester's in New York. Uh, what, what's town is that? Probably similar New, New York to Westchester yeah. is where I am to Boston, <laughs> but in Boston, um, yeah, I'm in a town called Winchester, maybe a, uh, a slightly better, the better known, maybe near nearby towns would be Lexington, Somerville, yeah. Arlington. And if I go a little closer to, um, Boston and Cambridge and right now it's about a 15 minute drive to the office because yeah. everything's empty. Um, everything's empty in a, in a morning commute. It's somewhere between 45 minutes. Um, it's pretty normal. It, anything funky happens, it quickly is an hour, hour 10. And if something catastrophic has happened, it's an hour and a half and more and all bets are off. Um, but, uh, 
I'm just working from home. So nice. who knows what it's like out there? Well, towards the end of the year, I'm sure everything will be back to normal. And I've got a lot of people. I, I'm in Boston a couple times every year because, you know, there's so many Vista prints out there. They're a really cool company. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know the guys over there, mm-hmm. but um, they they actually have like a parent company. There's like a Vista print for every country. Oh, and like okay. their parent company is in, is in Boston, but they have a lot of healthcare companies, a lot of AI type startups, but yeah. uh, I really like you. And so like next time I'm, I'm out in that area, I'll, I'll send you a note and maybe we can yeah, you know, meet up, say hello. That'd be great. I'd love it. We, we could be past this social distancing stuff and have like a, re- a legitimate beer and hang out or whatever. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> not a, not an air fist bump, but a real fist bump or even. Oh, <laughs> shake hands Wait, like boom do the fist bump and we'll get a screen grab of that all right dude boom. Boom. do it up to the camera boom <laughs> all right digital fist bump social distancing fish bump. yeah <laughs> all right well you have a fantastic day enjoy the rest of your afternoon chris you too it's great hanging out with you great to talk to you, you bud see you later Bye. everyone cheers